Being something of an amateur film geek, and of course coming from Lore Mom, who is a huge film geek, uh, being able to look at this film and the whole of the Dollars Trilogy, actually, which will be next week, or I shouldn't say next week, the next Friday Rumination and the next Friday Rumination after that will be the rest of the Dollars Trilogy. This was a treat. Being able to back, go through that, back through this page of history was awesome. And I could kind of see how and why, well, several things kind of became as popular and interesting as they are. Before I go into any of that, I want to say, for those curious, no, this was not the version that had the new intro. For those of you not aware of what I'm talking about, uh, some executives were like, you know, <clears throat> this movie doesn't explain any motivations for the main character. Maybe we should go ahead and do that. I've got it. He's been released from prison, and as a consequence of his being released, he has to go clean up the town. There we go, and we'll tack that on at the beginning. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something that's probably going to make me pretty unpopular amongst film geeks. I don't mind if you go back and change something. I don't. I'm not a purist. I never have been. However, however, you have to make it better. That's kind of the, the trick there. You have to improve the work. And I think in that case, that actively made it worse. It sort of completely destroys the overall approach of his motivation, but more to the point, it also destroys the entire thematic point of the movie. As I will probably comment on later, this is effectively a slice-of-life episode, or episode, God, this is going to be a movie. And I know that sounds strange, but this really is just another day in the life of this Mexican town. This is just, all right, he's wandering and wandering, and he wanders into this town, sees an opportunity to make some money, tries to do so, grows a conscience, gets a lot of people killed, and then leaves. The story goes on. It's just another chapter in a much larger book. That's what I mean by that. There's probably a more proper term for that, and I don't care off the top of my head. But you get what I mean. This is a Tuesday, and I like that approach. If this is the story of the man who was released from prison to go take this out, it, it suddenly becomes his redemption story, and also becomes like the concluding part of his particular arc that he's been going through. You know, aha, I have redeemed myself, that kind of a thing. It also doesn't work for the beginning part of the film at all. Anyways, I do want to mention a few things. So obviously I am a big fan of oh, Sergio Leone. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who looked that one up? <clears throat> He's... I want to talk about this here. We're covering the whole Dollars Trilogy. That, that was what was requested, was the Dollars Trilogy. So we're going to be talking about uh, Fistful of Dollars and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But I want to talk here at the beginning, because even with this, this obviously wasn't Mr. Leone's first film, but it was among his first, and it was certainly his first really successful one. Now, before we move forward, we do have to acknowledge the elephant of the room. Yes, this is a very serious riff off of Yojimbo, and it would be foolishness to try and acknowledge anything else. Everyone could see that. Anybody who's seen Yojimbo and this film could be like, yeah, no, this, this is a retelling of Yojimbo. Now, that's fine. There's nothing actually wrong with trying to do a retelling of a story, especially if you transplant it into another setting, right? <clears throat> Catches, they didn't really get permission or licensing or rights or anything to do that, which led to some legal problems. And, well, since they settled out of court, we don't actually know what the settlement was, but long and the short of it is, despite the financial and legal problems, this film is a good film, and as a consequence, it made decent money, and it pretty much launched his career. By the way, quick aside, I am actually a huge Kurosawa fan myself, 
And if you have not seen Yojimbo, let me privately recommend you take the time to go watch it. It's a good film. <clears throat> Let's talk about theater. This is still relatively early in filmography, in, in the very concept of filmmaking. And in my opinion, a lot of the old, truly great directors made plays with a camera. Now, I'm going to fail miserably at explaining this. Um, one of the first things I noticed, I was very young, uh, like seven, eight, or nine, somewhere around that range, when I first noticed that older films just had a completely different feel to them. Uh, I actually even remember the first film it was. It was THX, uh, whatever the number is, you know, George Lucas's little film. And I've been watching several other older films, too, including the older Bond films and, like, you know, this film here. And they all seemed slower. Now, I don't mean more boring. There are, of course, examples of boring films, both modern and old. But I mean the overall pace of the older films felt slower. And I think, and this has taken me years to come to this conclusion, I think it's because they were basically written to be plays, theatrical plays, in other words. And then they were filmed. Now, the truly good ones, the, the films that stood above and beyond the others, are the ones that were still a play, but used the camera to good effect. I want to talk about the first, that first part really quick. First of all, if you've seen this film, tell me this doesn't feel like a one-act. I mean, I know it's an hour and 50 minutes film, but this feels like a one-act play, right? Maybe not a one-act. I suppose you could probably stretch this out to a full three-act play. But you see what I'm talking about. There, in fact, are three definitive acts in the play, so I suppose I shouldn't call it a one-act. But can't you see this? Can't you just pick, close your eyes for a second? Picture the stage. Wanders onto the stage, stands there. You just kind of stand there on the right side of the stage. People walk into the left side of the stage. They start doing their scene. And then it kind of, they leave, and then it cuts back to the people on the other side of the stage. And they're like, well, huh. Could be a situation to make some money. You know, can't you picture that? And I know what you're thinking. Lord, you could say that about a lot of movies. Well, honestly, I disagree. I think most of the older films, and I mean the really older films, we're talking 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, not even in 70s, honestly, 40s, 50s, 60s range, are the ones that have that feel to it. Now, again, that's not a complaint. This is especially true in the way the dialogue tends to be constructed. There's a lot of ha 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 with regards to the tempo of how people talk to each other that feels very much like a stage play. People just basically waiting for their cue to launch into their next line kind of a deal. This is funny, of course, since this film was dubbed over, but, but you get my point. So that would just be a film, or excuse me, God, I'm just screwing up everything today. That would just be a play at that point. What makes it a film is how you use the camera. And this is one of the things I like most about Leone. So one of the things he likes to do is he likes to follow the one-thirds rule. Now, there's probably a more official term for this, and I've never heard it personally. It's something I learned extensively back when I used to take a lot of art classes. It's the idea of trying to focus the main focus of your 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 character. I, I'm not actually a good example here. I'm looking at my screen here. But you can kind of see I'm kind of in one-thirds. Actually, I'm more like in one-fourths. But imagine if I was bigger, I'm not going to do it. And, I, and you've got this focus here. And this is where the focus point is. And then you try to pull everything at kind of an angular diagonal sort of a thing, like this, when it comes to how you want the motion of the scene to go. That's the one-thirds rule. And he uses this constantly. I, I, there's one scene in particular I, I remember, which is a good example of this. There's a long shot of the, the, the center of town, and the people are coming in from the lower right, going out to the upper left, 
And so the majority of the town is in the two-thirds, and the people coming in form the third-third, the one-third, kind of like this. And it's, it's an excellent visual style, and he does this constantly. He knows how to use this rule to make scenes seem more dynamic. And this is one of the reasons I like the one-third rule so much. Because if you have something completely centered, it looks a little off. Like, there's just something unusual about that. If you have something to one side or the other, that can pull a different approach to it. That can make a different feel to it. If you have someone in the corner, kind of like I do, you know, because I'm, I'm in the one-fourth rule over here. But if you have someone in the corner, you can kind of emphasize how they are supposed to be... Um, uh, emphasizing via negative space. In other words, all the negative space here, trying to emphasize that. But if you do the one-thirds rule, well, that's awesome. And it, it really pulls the viewer into what they're seeing and pretty much informs what they should be looking at immediately because the eye naturally follows the flow of the angle of the camera. Now, I know this is all really base-level stuff, but remember, that that's part of my point, is that these initial filmmakers knew how to use the camera in a way that other people weren't. They came up with these concepts. They came up with these baseline ideas that, that were around years before I was born, at least until the time travel incident. And so these allowed people to then expound upon them and actually do modern cinematography. It's brilliant stuff. I love it. Forgive me for gushing for a moment. But I do have one other thing to talk about here. One of the topics that has come up, uh, this came up when we were doing a premiere run of Red Dead Redemption 2, and the topic was, why are Westerns popular? You know, why is the Old West a thing? And we talked about, around it, and basically boiled down to the same concept of why the Age of Sail is so popular. Because if you remember, both periods are actually really tiny chunks of history, like a decade or two, and that's it. But for those brief periods of history, there was enough of one type of culture and technology drifting into another type, and the c collusion of those two types created a unique circumstance. And that's the first part of what's so interesting about it. The second part of what's so interesting about it is the fact that there's a lot of storytelling potential within such a, within such a concept. And the third is, let's be honest, stuff like this. I have argued before, and will argue again, that this very film is one of the biggest reasons why the Old West thing became so popular here in the States. Now, yes, obviously there had been Old West stuff before this. I, I'm not trying to say there hadn't. Even, even Clint Eastwood had been in Westerns before this. But I still think that this is the film that really made it explode in popularity and, more to the point, solidified itself within you know culture, within the concept of the Old West. There's also a lot of very typical... Uh, how do I phrase this? I don't know how to phrase this. There's a lot of typical uh, archetypes and tropes that are used here because they were basically being invented back in this era. Again, Yojimbo, but you, you get my point. In fact, the third film in this trilogy we'll be looking at actually invented multiple cliches that many, many other more modern films would take on a point of using. But I don't want to get out of that film. Let's, let's talk about the film itself. Let's talk about the film itself. So what do we see right at the beginning? He's just roaming into town, getting some water from the well, you know. And there's a kid who rushes over, terrified, screaming, crying. And some guys, Chico, actually, specifically, starts shooting at the kid. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't shoot to kill. He's just shooting to scare. But he's shooting in the direction of a kid. This is another thing this film does a lot of establishment. And it usually establishes a character right in their first scene. So the first thing we see of Chico is that he's a thuggish 
horrible brute, right? We also see, you know, the kid running off and, you know, the father whose name I don't actually remember. And uh, uh, Marisol, we see her briefly. And, by the way, just to make things simple, I'm going to go ahead and refer to the main character as Joe. Is that okay? Because if I say the man with no name each time, it's going to get a little old. And if I say Eastwood each time, uh, so Joe. <clears throat> Points if you get it. Now, <laughs> Joe, you know, he's just, okay, just staying out of it. Don't know what's going on there. It's kind of messed up, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to be over here. Didn't see nothing. Walks into town. First, first, first person he meets is Silvanito. Now, Silvanito is probably my favorite character in this film. Uh, I would say there's actually one other character that contests that. What I find most interesting is, once again, we see establishment. He shows up. What's the first thing he does? He's welcoming. You know, food, drink. Yeah, we got that. Sure. You should leave, though. No, seriously, you should, why, aren't, why aren't you leaving? Why aren't you leaving? And he starts just talking about the town to this guy. What we see, and I think this is part of what I like about the character, he's just a good person. He's just a basic good person. He even offers him the food and drink, effectively for free, if he'll just take his advice and get the hell out of Dodge. <clears throat> There's also a lot of approach in the visual style to try and get across just how... Uh, what's the wording I want to use here? How dilapidated this place is. Now, this is important because this place is swimming in money. At least certain individuals within this place are swimming in money. And, of course, I would be hesitant to, or remiss if I did not point out the obvious visual disparity between the two factions. Um, Ramon's crew, the Rojos, they're, you know, <laughs> yeah, yes, but they've also got lots of food and lots of drink and lots of guns and lots of men. So you can kind of see where they've spent their money. By contrast, the Baxters, they're, you know, ah, yes, we've got money and, and elegance and nice outfits. And, we, you know, we, we dress nicely and we have a nice house with accoutrements all over the place. And you can see where they spend their money. It's a nice, again, it's part of that visual distinction and disparity that they put on display. They never have to say it out loud. They never have to say, so you say. <clears throat> but what they do say is that this is a town that has two bosses. And what I love about that is they don't have to explain that at all. They do explain it a little bit. You know, one, there's a lot of gun running, there's a lot of liquor running. One faction wants run, one, the other faction runs the other. And that's just a problem. The implication immediately there is that most towns in this era have one boss. And the one boss runs things, and then things are smooth. Two bosses, well, that means we've got kind of a Sith situation going on, don't we? With a lot of scrabbling over each other for power and position. Now, what's doubly interesting about this is the Baxters, by all account... You know, hang on, is it Baxters or Daxters? I think it's Baxters. Pretty sure I should look this up. How many topic? They certainly seem to be in the more civilized kind, but more to the point, they seem to be a lot less interested in trying to uh, butcher or kill the other side. Now that's also interesting because the other side is far more violent and far more brutal. In fact, one of the things I find strangest about this entire situation is usually when this kind of thing is shown, the two sides are shown as equally complicit and equally bad, right? That doesn't seem to really be the case here. 
It is Baxter's. I was right. Gosh darn it. Because the Baxter's universally seem to be decent folk. And the Rojos seem to be pretty universally horrible folk. I, I could comment on that, but let's move on for now. Moving on, moving on. So, Joe decides, okay, I mean, I'm just passing through, but I can make some money here. I mean, that's the goal, right? He is literally a wanderer. He is the old western version of an adventurer. So he sees a quest hook in town, and he decides to do something about it. And you can kind of see why I say this has that whole slice-of-life feel to it. This is a Tuesday for him. So he's like, all right, <clears throat> Mr. Rojo, I don't work cheap. And then he walks over to the Baxter's, and he talks to them for a bit. Now, I'm curious, and I, I'm going to ask a couple questions of you guys in this one. Do you think he actually wanted to give them a chance to apologize to his mule, or was he just trying to provoke them into a fight? I don't know. Up to you. But either way, he just uh, shoots them dead. Now, this establishes two things. One, he knows how to plan ahead and he's smart. And two, he is a damned quick draw, a damned accurate shot. And those that makes him an incredibly deadly person. Several people in this film mention that. But unlike... Well, I don't want to name names. Unlike other films... All of his credentials, so to speak, are established on camera. The game, the game, the film shows how competent he is on a regular basis. Not to skip ahead too much, but there's a scene later where he's being tortured. Torture, 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 torture. And then they're like, ha ha, okay, leave him. We will come back in the morning to torture him some more. So they leave. And then a few of them come back to go torture him some more. And despite being outnumbered, outgunned, overpowered, weak, hurting, he manages to outthink his way through his opponents by first, you know, the barrels, killing Chico, much deserved, and second, by the fire, setting fire to the place and then closing the door. I only point that example up because it's probably my personal favorite example of him showing that he is, um, ow. <laughs> that hurt. That he is better than his opponents. I might edit that out. <laughs> he uh, he manages to completely outmaneuver everyone around him constantly. And he also knows how to play his opponent. When he's... Oh, I'm getting too far ahead of myself a little bit, but when he does the final showdown against Ramon, he constantly is taunting him. The heart. The heart. You gotta shoot the heart. No, you're missing. You're missing. You're not hitting the heart. You're not hitting the heart, man. It's the only way you're going to take me down. You told me that. Nope, see, it's, I'm still going. It's not working. you got to go for the heart, buddy. And he does that because if Ramon decided to shoot him in the legs or the arms or the head, that would have been endgame. So he manages to out-psychologically play Ramon right up until Ramon runs out of cartridges. Oh, and then he kills everyone but Ramon. I'll, I'm getting way ahead of myself, though. Let's rewind a lot. So then we meet Miguel. Of the Rojos. And he's immediately a yes man. He act, It's actually funny because it, at first glance you might think that, because we introdu are introduced to both Miguel and then Esteban in very short order. You might think Miguel is the smart one and Esteban's the stupid one, but it's actually more like Miguel is the, yes, yes, of course. And Esteban is the stupid one. Because if you pay attention to everything Miguel says, He's all, he's talking about just we need to maintain the status quo. We we can't move everything. We can't change anything. This guy is very dangerous. And I don't want anything disrupting anything. Okay, everything has to stay nice and steady 
for what's for what's coming. When Ramon comes back, nothing's going to have changed. I need to please the boss. Lick boot, lick boot. It, it's all there in his dialogue and the way he portrays himself. Esteban, who is probably loyal to Ramon, um, he's just a thug in the similar vein to Chico. You'll notice that in both of the torture scenes in this film, Esteban's just laughing, just enjoying it. He's also the last person to die, but I'll get to that later. So, look at my notes here. I do like how they mention how dangerous Mr. Joe is. I also like Joe's reaction to the sheriff thing. I'm the sheriff. Okay, well, I won't shoot you then. Sheriff doesn't try to shoot him back or do anything. He just flashes a badge. He does it almost feebly. You can kind of see the variance there. If I were to use such terminology of mine own, I would say that the Baxters are politically powerful and the Rojos are personally powerful. And that's probably why things go the way they go, but I'm getting off topic. Then we are introduced to Ramon. Actually, just before we're introduced to Ramon, let me rewind a second. He's offered a place to stay at the Rojo place, and he decides, nope, I'm out. Peace. Why? Ah, you know. I got other stuff going on. He also later on returns the money to, uh, to uh, Miguel. Now, I point both of these points out because it helps to show how smart he is. If he'd kept the money, then they would have been far more inclined to run after him and kill him with sticks. And, in fact, if he had decided to stay there, he would be at their mercy, effectively. All he'd have to do is fall asleep under the bad circumstances, and there you go, he's freaking dead. So instead, he decides to stay with the one and only person in town who's actually been pretty cool with him, Silvanito, who is awesome. I, I wish I had more to say about him. He's just an awesome character. Then we're introduced to Ramon. Now notice how Ramon is introduced. Gleefully gunning people down with a gun that doesn't work that way. Um, in And in what is supposed to be a good faith thing, in order to blame it on the others, in order to steal their gold. This is a trade-off between the U.S. military and, I, I suppose, the Mexican military, the cavalry. And the two sides were supposed to do this, and Ramon has taken over for the U.S. military and is going to stage it as if they both killed each other. So he kills two entire, uh, I would say, platoons worth of troops, and does so basically as a, as a sneak attack. And he seems to be enjoying himself. He's, he's all too eager to gun them down. This establishes Ramon's personality very quickly. Then we see the one Mexican troop trying to run on horseback. Then he pulls out his rifle and shoots him one shot, no problem. This establishes his competency with that rifle. That'll be a recurring trend for him, because he really favors that thing. Ah, Winchester, I want to say. I'm not actually sure about that. Don't quote me. <clears throat> the movie kind of moves forward a little bit, and, and I don't have much to say about a lot of the specifics here. I do have to say, <laughs> there's a nice scene where Ramon says, Miguel's like, aha, we did this, and Ramon's like, no, no, we need to do this. And the very next thing Miguel says is, yes, of course, we need to do that. It's the more obvious example of Miguel being the bootlicker. In fact, it's probably worth noting Miguel has almost no character to this point in the rest of the film. Anyways, so they decide to make peace with the Baxters and say, yep, yep, no, no, we're cool. This investigation, you know, you, you go ahead and look into it. I mean, it's not like forensics has been invented yet, right? <laughs> but then there's the two soldiers. And this leads to him really, really just completely outplaying both sides. He reaches out to the Baxters and reaches out to my second favorite character in the film, uh, Consuelo, 
Consuelo Baxter. She's also smart, but the problem is she is politically smart. She knows the value of information. She knows the value of money. She knows how to do with what, where, and when. And in fact, for every every scene she's in, with one exception, she is basically the one actually running the other side of the operation. So... He sells her the knowledge of the fact that, you know, of, of the massacre and what, what they stole and the gold. And then he goes to the Rojos and he sells to them the fact that there's the two surviving troops there. And he walks out of that with a thousand dollars. Think about how much money that was then. Think about how much money that is now. <laughs> then, while both factions are off, he decides to raid the warehouse and look for where they have the money hidden. Cute. So he now has $1,000 and all this money. He is basically one. This leads to the scene where he basically accidentally knocks out... Oh, what's her name again? Marisol. Marisol. Now, Marisol is actually played by a German woman. Um, she's an interesting part of this film. I was going to criticize her mostly, not, not because of the actress, actually, but because the script does almost nothing with her. She has very, very few lines of dialogue, and she is effectively a plot coupon. However, I, I, in hindsight, I think I can forgive it for two big reasons. Number one, I think the actress actually does a pretty good job with the role. There are several scenes where she effectively has no dialogue, where she gets across a lot of emotion with her facial expression and with her body language. Point two, she serves, or more accurately, she and her family serve, as the point at which Joe decides to actually do something other than make money off this situation. If you're paying attention, if he hadn't knocked her out, there's a pretty good chance he could have just left town. Maybe maybe given some money to Silvanito first. Actually, probably given some money to Silvanito first. And then left out. But he accidentally knocks her out, which, by the way, is actually a very competent thing. You'll notice he doesn't wait to see who it is. He just immediately knocks them out, which is the smart thing to do. Takes her to Consuelo. Says, here. Okay, take care of this. And that's when things start to go bad. So he decides, okay, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of watch. You know, I'm... I'm done with this. We'll see what happens. And that's when he finds out about her, the whole situation. She was kidnapped under... So, okay, hang on. Let me, let me rewind up a second here. Uh, there was a card game which didn't go properly, and as a consequence, her husband lost her in said card game. Now, based on the way the film is stated, it makes it pretty clear that Ramon... How do I phrase this? Is horrible. And so he staged the card game or faked the card game or lied about it or cheated at it or whatever. And in so doing, took her as, as, as a hostage, as he says. But it's clear he intends to just keep her. And he, they also threaten the child to make sure that everyone stays complicit in this whole situation. The child who is constantly desperately trying to see his mother again. <laughs> y yeah. So he is... Um, Disgusting, I think is the word I want to use there. But the other word I want to use, and this is something that I find interesting. Ramon, I feel like he's actually amoral, or what we might also refer to as a sociopath. But I, I'm going to stick with my amoral side of things there. Because the way he acts in, in two scenes around her is that she belongs to him, therefore it's okay. It's a good thing. In, in other words, I don't get the vibe from him that he, he has any acknowledgement of doing wrong, but instead that he, what he is doing is right. 
and that now she now that she belongs to him now that he you know don't worry it'll be okay honey i'll take care of this and i'll be back shortly as if she's literally his wife when in fact she is his prisoner this is horrible and I, I, I can't even put this into words and you'll notice that this is one of the two things along with the child that makes joe decide okay yeah that is this this is messed up i'm going to get involved in this so the next thing joe does of course he goes and he deals with this. By the way, I wanted to mention the actress's name. I wrote, I wrote it down. Uh, Mariana Koch, which I hope I'm pronouncing at least partially correctly because I can't do German with a damn. But she does a good job of it, like I said. So he goes to rescue Marisol. And once again, I hate to keep bashing this point. We see his competency. Hello. And bam, 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 bam. Just destroys them all. Then knocks over the place and, you know, leaves it all a flutter. And the idea being that he was going to get back in time to basically have said, ah, oh, no, the Baxters totally did it. But notice he gives money, just straight gives money to the family. Gives it to the husband, takes, you know, husband, wife, son, get out, get over the border, go make a new life for yourselves, leave now. And I was actually with him, because he's like, they're like, no, why are you doing this? And he's like, just go. <laughs> Jesus Christ, they're coming on horses right now. Go. <sighs> Thankfully, they do get out. Awesome. That actually made me happy. Notice that the moment he... <coughs> excuse me. The moment that he... Oh, goodness. It's okay. I keep cough stuff by my desk for a reason. The reason is I talk too much. The moment he decides to start helping people, rather than manipulating them into getting their money, that's when things start to go bad for him. I've been debating that point for a while, and I don't think it's on purpose. I think it's the typical part of the act structure. Introduce, lose, win. In very, very simple terms. Three acts. Third, first act is all about establishment. Second act is when things go badly. Third act is when things are turned around and go in, and become a win. So I think it's more the consequence of the fact that this is the second act, and that's when he starts to lose. It also, admittedly, makes his later successes very satisfying. I will go ahead and go so far as to say that I don't think at any point he comes across as either a Mary Sue or that he just wins because the, the villains are stupid or because of plot. He actually legitimately outthinks and outmaneuvers his opponents repeatedly. And I feel like he earned it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like this character so much and why I enjoyed so much watching him just absolutely own everyone. The one and only skill he has that seems like it's, you know, too good is his, like I said, his aiming and his speed. There's a great scene, so we're kind of catching up to what I mentioned earlier. There's a great scene where he shoots every <laughs> remaining member of Ramon's, Ramon's crew, with one exception, in basically, a few, in like, a couple of seconds, with a revolver. <laughs> but before I get to that, I want to mention one other thing. There's two torture sequences. I actually referenced these earlier. Both of these are effectively shot from the perspective of people who are perceiving them and not the torture itself. Now, this makes sense. Um, you don't want to show all of that kind of thing on camera. There's only so much you can fake it. I mean, you saw the blood looks astonishingly fake. It's probably my biggest complaint about the whole film. The, I, I know that's a minor thing to bring up, and I know it's an older film. It was just so fake. But... 
You only want to show so much of that because you only can so, show so much of it. But more to the point, even if you had the tech and the resources, it's more effective to show people's reactions to it and to hear it rather than to show it on camera, in my opinion. And I think that this is done to good effect. Probably the best example is actually when they go for Silvanito. And we hear Silvanito being tortured and beat up while the camera stays on Joe. And Joe is just, who is still battered and beaten, is just very slowly making his way through. And he's just hearing all this. And you can tell he is not happy about this whole situation. You'll note that, by the way, once again, he had the opportunity to just bail. He could get, he's got tons of money. He could just bail and get out of town and do whatever he wants. You could argue he didn't have the money anymore, but either way, it is my opinion that he stays and settles things. Yeah, sure, revenge. But also because he didn't want to leave Silvanito to literally hang. There's this, the Baxter Massacre. I have a note here in my, in my notes. This is actually pretty well done. In contrast to the torture scene, they show a lot of this. Now, it's all fake violence. But the way it's shot, with quick edits, with lots of people, with screams, with fire, this is not glorified. This is a bunch of butchers massacring an innocent and, and effectively defenseless population for basically no reason. Multiple times the movie goes out of its way to show people coming out surrendering, throwing their hands up in the air, begging for mercy, and then being shot after they finished begging for mercy. There is something really messed up about that scene. It's very powerful. It gets across exactly its point. And again, it gets back to the idea of just how horrible Ramon really is. It is the final establishing point of his character. In fact, you could say the literal final point of his establishment is when he shoots Consuelo. Just... And that's the end of her. So she, as she, just before she gets shot, by the way, she says, I hope you die spitting blood. Uh, funny how that worked out. Then Perry Perro gets more screen time. Now, I didn't have much to say about him. He's, he's an interesting character in his own right. He strikes me as someone who's completely ambivalent to all of this. It's all just business to him. He ends up helping because, eh, why not, you know? <laughs> I mean, this guy will work with me, so that's a good thing. It's not like Ramon, Ramon, Ramon will work with me, so I'm with it. I already mentioned this, but it bears repeating. The final duel is a really great scene. I will actually freely admit, the first time I ever saw this scene was in Back to the Future 2. Go ahead, make fun. It's okay, I deserve it. But make of this what you will. It was such an interesting scene that it made me actually ask Mom, and this actually started why I got into this film. I was like, well, what's that film from? She's like, uh... I can't remember. You know, it's one of those old Eastwood films, and we ended up looking it up. It's like, aha! Can we rent that? Do they have that at the rental store? They did. <laughs> Go figure. So we ended up watching this one. It's a great scene. It takes a long time establishing itself, and it shows how Ramon is not actually that smart, put simply. He is not someone who is the equal in intellect of his opponent. He is not someone who can actually uh, deal with any kind of unusual circumstance. Now, I, I'm, I'm saying this weirdly. What I mean by this is we see that Eastwood's character, Joe, I am saying it right, Ramon, I keep, keep doubting myself. Uh, East, uh, Joe is someone who, under dire circumstances, still manages to outmaneuver and outthink his opponents. Ramon crumbles completely when, when he is confronted with something he, he can't deal with. 
You'll notice also, Ramon, despite his constant statement of, I'm the smart one, I'm, I'm the intelligent one of the group, I'm the one who makes the, the calls, he's actually pretty simplistic in his approach. He uses brute force, and he uses brute pain. And that's basically it. I'll, this woman is mine. I'll kill your son if she's not mine. Okay, you're going to tell me what I need, and we're going to beat you up until you tell me. And then we're going to beat him up until you tell me. And then we're going to kill all these people until they tell me. And then we're going to beat him up until we tell me. We're just going to keep brute forcing our way through the situation. So he keeps shooting for that hard. It's the only reason this works. If Ramon was actually more competent and had a brain, he'd probably shoot for the head after the last few shots didn't work. But, thankfully, it doesn't work that way. The magazine runs dry. And Joe owns the hell out of him. You notice, this is probably the one mistake Joe makes in the whole bit. He insists on getting revenge. He says, alright, so, here. Here's your rifle, load up. I got, you know, I got my, my revolver, I'll load up. We'll see who wins. Bam! <laughs> Die spitting blood. And then at the end, last bit, I, I, I referenced this earlier, Esteban is actually the last one to die. The only... <laughs> that actually made me go, really? Until I saw the one who killed him, which was Silvanito. I remember Esteban was the uh, cruel one, the one who was constantly laughing and torturing. So it makes sense that his, his moralistic opposite, Silvanito, was the one to actually shoot him in the end. And, of course, giving him a sense of closure on the matter as well. Then Joe leaves. And, of course, appropriate bookend. The army on one, the U.S. Army on one side, the Mexican Army on the other. Me in the middle? Oh, that's too dangerous. I'm out. Peace. And we'll see him again in the next chapter. Now I'm going to comment more about that next time thing uh, next time. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on what is a surprisingly good film, uh, given its age and given its propensity. It was a treat going back through this one. I'll see you next time, guys.